0: This is all right, I got it, under wraps now and this is all night, get us out of sight, uptight, one of my questions, stage right, fall down, bright up town.
1: asking questions, do the fall down, fall down, fall down, fall down, do you
0: join me the Welcome to Conflict Managed, I'm your host, Mary Brown. You will fail you will have difficult times. When hard times come your way, what will you do? Today on Conflict Managed, Randy Boyd, University of Tennessee president, encourages us to persevere in the face of hardship. He tells us of the four things he has discovered successful businesses do. He tells us of settling disputes with a win, win, win in mind, and a great program, the Birthday Lunch and Learn, that allows him to listen to employees from across the organization as well as employees networking with each other. Randy Boyd was appointed as the 26th president of the University of Tennessee System. Boyd founded Knoxville-based Radio Systems Corporation, a company that produces over 4,000 pet-related products under the brand names PetSafe, Invisible Fence, ScoopFree, and SportDog. The company employs more than 1,400 people with offices in six countries around the world. Boyd Sports LLC owned by Randy and Jenny Boyd owns the Greenfield Flyboys and Tennessee Smokies. The company also owns the Johnson City Doughboys, Elizabethton River Riders, and operates the King Sports Axemen. Boyd also served the state of Tennessee in numerous roles including serving as Commissioner of the Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development and as the Governor's Special Advisor on Higher Education where he was the architect of Tennessee Promise and Drive to 55. He is also the founder and chairman of the nonprofit Tennessee Achieves. Randy and Jenny Boyd have dedicated their lives to giving back. In 2018, the couple founded the Boyd Foundation to further promote youth education, mental health, the arts, and animal welfare. Boyd is the first in his family to graduate from college. He earned a bachelor's degree in business with an emphasis on industrial management from UT Knoxville. He also earned a master's degree in liberal studies with a focus on foreign policy from the University of Oklahoma. The Boyds live in Knoxville and have two children and two grandchildren. Good morning, Randy, and welcome to Conflict Manage. We're so happy to have you today.
1: Good morning, Mary. I'm excited to be with you.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's just go ahead and get right into it. I would like to hear about your work history.
1: Well, I'll give you just a brief summary. So um, I'm the first one in my family's history to go to college. My dad started a factory when I was eight years old. I worked my way through the factory, uh, sweeping floors, uh, running injection molding machines, but it came time to go to college. uh, My dad encouraged me just to stay in the the factory and work, but I wanted to get a degree. So he made me a a great offer that that, uh, um, I thought was uh, extraordinarily generous at the time. He said, I'm not going to give you money to go to college, but I'll give you a job so you can pay your way through, which (laughs) I thought I was very fortunate to be able to have a, a job to be able to pay my way through graduated from the University of Tennessee at age 19, went to work for my dad for the first four years, uh, working in uh, sales for his company until at age 23, I realized what almost every young man realizes. My dad wasn't really smart and he, he wasn't paying me enough. So I started my own company, which failed in six months. And I realized what every young man hopefully also realizes later on. My dad was a lot smarter than I gave him credit for, uh, but I was a little was too proud to go back. So I started another company selling electric fencing out of the back of a Dodge, MaxiVan, little feed stores all over the Southeast. After about six years of that, customers started asking me for a product called the Invisible Fence. They wouldn't sell it to me, so I made my own. Um, about uh, 10 years later, my company was about three times the size of the original company, so I was able to go back and, and buy their company from them. Uh, over the 30 years that I had the company, we grew to uh, over 4,000 products, and today the company will do about $750 million in sales. Uh, with about uh, 1,200 employees in uh, six countries around the world, with uh, sales in over 70 countries around the world. I sold the company in July of 2020, um, and over the five years prior to selling the company, I had uh, 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 gravitated more to public service. In 2013, I worked for Governor Haslam as a special advisor on higher education, creating something called the Drive to 55, an overarching mission for our state, and a program called... Uh, Tennessee Promise, which made it possible for everybody in our state to go to a technical community college free of charge, came back and served uh, two years as commissioner of economic and community development, Uh, felt like the the best way to make the biggest difference for the most people was in public service, and uh, felt like a lot of the programs that the governor and I had started would end with his term, so decided to try to add an extra eight years onto those programs by running for governor myself. That didn't work out. But I was fortunate enough that uh, at the end of the campaign, someone asked me if I would just serve as the interim president for the University of Tennessee, fell in love with the job, and most of the people felt like I was doing a pretty good job as well. And so I, I eliminated the interim title, and now I've been as the president of UT for uh, close to four years now. So that's a pretty good summary of my whole entire life in three minutes or less.
0: <laughs> yeah, very concise. Uh, so when you were working for your father and you decided to go out on your own, Why did you decide to not just go work for somebody else, but start your own business?
1: Well, I'd always uh, imagined myself being an entrepreneur. And and also, I I grew up uh, uh, having a father that was an entrepreneur. So I had a lot of great great firsthand experience. And age 23, somebody came to me. I actually came to my dad with a a product idea. Uh, And dad's company at the time was in Chapter 11. It was a very difficult time for them. Um and he said this son, this is a I think it's a really good idea, but I don't have the, the bandwidth to uh, pursue it right now. I thought it could be. So I designed a prototype, took a week's vacation and went out and sold four thousand of the or oh, I'm sorry, four hundred of these units, which um, at the time, I was it was a storm alert, a barometer alarm system for that would pick up on tornadoes. I sold them for sixteen dollars, had a gross margin of ten dollars in them, and uh, so I so in my mind I thought, oh, I just made four thousand dollars. That's a whole lot more than my dad's pay me. I should I'll, I'll quit my job and and go pursue this. That turned out to be the best week we ever had, but uh, it was it was that I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, having an idea that I thought would be successful. And and again, once um, that idea failed, um, I was a little too proud to go back and. Want to continue to pursue uh, something on my own.
0: When you were working for your father, I mean, this happens to most of us, you know, in our first jobs, something will not resonate with us, with our boss. But looking back, we think, wow, that was a gift. If, if I was an older me working there, I would see it as good management styles. So what, what did you learn from your working with your father?
1: You know, so my dad, so I'll say this, my dad and I have completely different management philosophies. Dad is like many people of his generation, believes in control, command and control uh, hierarchy, um, keeping things kind of close to the vest. He wants people to do exactly what he says. And he, if they do that, then everything will be fine. I've always been more of a, an empowerment leader, giving people uh, the mission and the values and a strategy and then letting them. Uh, work within those boundaries and, and innovate and and do things on their own uh as much as possible but uh it's despite despite that uh dad taught me a lot of great lessons I uh, will just mention one uh and that is uh how important it is to uh to process everything you do i remember at one, i mentioned that dad's company was in chapter 11 um at the end and i remember uh one of my colleagues at his company and i were uh, I went to him one time and said, you know, dad, you're the, the, at that time. The, the revenue was $8 million and they were lo- We were losing $2 million. I said, Dad, you're, we're so in the hole. Um, you should, uh, you should, it, 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 rather than trying to turn this around, it'd be easier just to close the company, go start something new. And I remember dad saying, son, I've got, Customers that are uh, depending on me, investors that are depending on me, employees that are inv- depending on me, uh, uh, vendors that are depending on me. I can't just let all of them down. And things were really bad, um, but he also showed me that um, th- uh, quitting is a decision that you make. Nobody makes you quit. You just decide that you you quit. Um, and uh, I guess the the power of persistence was a, probably one of the best lessons. One of the things I've noticed since then, I've always studied people that have uh, been successful in business, um, and, and through books and, and uh, firsthand encounters. And the one thing that I found that is consistent among all uh, people that are successful is persistence. Every there's a lot of different management styles. People do things a lot of different ways. As a matter of fact, everyone does everything. Or, uh, their, their, their story is generally very unique. But the one thing that they all have in common is persistence. Everybody gets knocked down, and the difference in the people that are successful over the long-term, they're the ones that pick themselves up and keep going.
0: Yeah, you know, that's so true. When we look at people who've been successful, um, as in your story, there are many starts and stops, uh, things that go uh, wrong in the beginning. And I think we tend to romanticize that, like, oh, in the beginning, this person tried this, and it didn't work. And then they tried this, and it didn't work. But I've already heard you said, and it was hard, and it was hard. And that persistence is, even when it's really tough, really tough. You keep on going.
1: And when you're living through those years, you don't imagine uh, that one day when you're much older, these will be the stories that you're telling over and over and over again. You're just hoping that you can survive to the next day. But uh, (laughs) it's kind of interesting to look back. Those stories about sleeping in $18 hotels and driving a van with no air conditioning and no radio, which were hard at the time, um, are are now the stories that everybody likes to hear.
0: Yeah. And I think uh, one thing that I've been um, learning as a as an entrepreneur and as a businesswoman, is that when I think about my long-term plans and where I want to be, it's not about getting there. It's it's never about getting there. We're always in process and enjoying and embracing and really living through the good and the bad, because that's what we have. I mean, our life is all about being in the present and not just looking to the future and saying, then I will enjoy it. And then this, this one life will happen for me or I'll be able to do whatever because I've achieved my goal, but in the process itself, because these are the good days, right? Your life in the present.
1: Uh, That's absolutely right. I it may sound trite, but you know, life is a journey. It's not, not the destination. And I I can say that with a little bit more authority now that I'm 62 years old, I've had a longer journey. I can say that there's never really an end point. Now there is the advantage over time. If things go well, that the, uh, You've got a bit more of a cushion. There's a little comfort in that part of it, but, but there's always something more that you want to accomplish, something more that you want to do.
0: Yeah, I think with age, uh, you, you do get perspective and you have more resources, but also when you're young, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so you're a little, maybe a little more adventurous than, the, and as you get older, you get a little bit cautious. So I guess there's always these uh, trade-offs um, of just starting out and being, you know, seasoned.
1: Yeah, well, when you're 23 years old, like my first company, it, 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 if it failed, the worst case scenario is I'd go back to work for my dad um, and I'd, I'd at least have a, uh, have a job. Um, but, you know, I think the uh, total investment in my first company was $5,000. I, 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 I started making my product in my grandmother's basement. People always say, well, you started in your garage? No, rich people start in their garage because if, if you have a garage, that means you have a house. And, and I didn't have a house. So I started in my grandmother's basement falling back completely to zero wasn't that big of a fall. You know, today it would be a much bigger fall.
0: What do you think about your, your work history? Is there a particular instance you'd like to tell us about that resonates with you as being one of the best work experiences, either with a colleague or one of your organizations? And what was it that was so significant for you? Well, you
1: know, I know that I could give you a really good answer to that as a single experience. I'll say a general theme over three different experiences. My 30 years with radio systems um, and my two years as commissioner of ECD and now my four years at the University of Tennessee. In each of those, I managed to build a great leadership team. One place we called it the senior staff, another one the executive leadership team. But in each case, there's six to eight people that have come together as a team that beca- build a really close bond and, and work really closely together. So I think one of my, my uh, best favorite parts of the experiences at each of the those organizations has been the the teamwork and the cla- the camaraderie that you build with that 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 team that you create.
0: So with your with building these teams, right? Um, are there any sort of policies that your team has put together for the good of the organization? Because you want people to thrive and be their best selves and be engaged. And if that's your goal, but the policy that you put together and put in place didn't deliver what you wanted to. And because I'm really interested in toxic work environments, we're trying to fix them, but our initiatives don't always work.
1: Well, so that may be a two part question. I'm going to give you the maybe a broader thematic structure that I believe leads to successful organizations. Then maybe we can talk about the toxic part uh, when you have a problem. But so I believe to have a successful organization you need four things. And in each of these three journeys in a for profit business, in a governmental entity, and then in a higher education entity, uh, we've done these four things. And in each case, I believe they've worked. Uh, so the first thing you have to have, I believe, in any organization is a mission, something that gets everybody excited about. And a great mission, I believe, li- lives between the probable and the impossible. And what I mean by that, if your mission is probable, um, it means that it's very likely to attain. That means for each of the, your your colleagues, if they just come to work each day and do what they would normally do. You're going to achieve it. So it's, it's a mission. It's achievable, but it's not very exciting. If you have a mission that's impossible, well, it's impossible. Nobody really believes it. So nobody's going to get very excited about that. But a great mission lives somewhere in between. It's beyond what you would normally expect to be able to accomplish if you do the things you normally do. But it's just within the possibilities if you could just do certain amount of innovation a few uh uh, breakthroughs you could actually get there and it gets people excited about achieving something that's really great and does feel attainable not easy but it's attainable so having something that people get really excited about at university of tennessee today our mission is make this the greatest decade in the history of the university of tennessee there's been some great decades before but we wake up every day thinking well if this is going to be the greatest decade what kind of things are we going to do to make that to be a true statement? And so we work on those kind of things. So we're excited about making this the greatest decade. It's what, it's what something you could go back uh, and look on your whole career and say, I was part of making the greatest decade in the University of Tennessee. So it's exciting. The second thing, you need to have a plan, a strategy. I think that sometimes uh, people make too much to do of strategies. A strategy should be simple and executable. But to have a strategy, have a way to get there, uh, a mission without a plan is just a wish. So you got to have a plan. So that's the second part. The third part is uh, surround yourself with great people. And that sounds trite. Um, sounds like something that uh, every, everyone says, but it's hard. Um, You've got to hire smart, and you're also going to make cuts when things aren't working out. Nobody ever says that, you know, I fired that person too soon. It's always too late. So when you know something isn't working, you need to make a change. And that might be you know, something we come back to on that toxic question. Uh, But making sure you have the right people on the bus is is critically important. And then the final thing is having a set of values. And at each of my organizations, at my company, at at ECD, and now at UT, we've created a set of values. And it helps if there are seven of them. And it helps um, that it's an acronym so people can remember them. Too often I go to organizations and say, oh, yeah, we have a set of values. And you ask them what they are and nobody can remember them. It doesn't do any good if nobody remembers them. Beyond the acronym and and having seven, um, it's also uh, incumbent on the leader to constantly talk about them, embed them in everything we do here at UT. They're part of your 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 performance review at the end of each year, how you measured up to each of the values. And we purposely talk about the values in, in in every every chance that we get. So those are kind of the four fundamental things that I think you need to do to have a great organization. As far as the toxic part is concerned, um, I think it's, it it ties back to your values. You need to have values that promote. Uh, teamwork, uh, honesty, transparency, trust, um, and people come up with different words. I've seen a lot of different values for different organizations. They kind of all tend to have at least those four things. Innovation is usually in there in some some form, but trust, teamwork, collaboration, transparency, I think are, are a key part of having an organization that uh, works well together. Um, and sometimes you'll have someone that doesn't live up to those values. And you can you can correct a lot of things you can, you can correct uh, technical uh, um, skill gaps, but if you have a behavior issue, it can be hard. Uh, you can work with the person, counsel them, make sure that they understand what they need to do, but uh, if they don't uh, make those changes, even if they're an exceptional performer in other ways, you can't have them on the team. And that's one of the things that's sometimes hard. It says, well, this person really gets their job done. They're a great performer. They're just... Uh, bring the morale down for the entire team. Well, that's that it doesn't matter about the other things. Um, you've got to make that call. Either they got to change or you've got to change them.
0: Yeah. And so when I think about, you know, this value based leadership that you're discussing and having a, a mission, a purpose for everybody to get behind, it sounds to me like this is how you, you build these people centric workplaces where people are encouraged not only, as you said, to do their job, but to, to thrive, right? So it, I love that idea of the, the mission just in between those spots. Because you know, if it's yeah. impossible, it can't do it. And if it's just run of the mill, you're going to get run of the mill, right?
1: And if you think about it, it was true for me, um, but I think for all our colleagues as well. So it's fun to come to a place where you've got, you're surrounded by smart people that all share the same values working on the same strategy to achieve this really exciting mission. You want to be there. And it's just a fun place to be a part of. Now, you're going to have challenges uh, along the way, but that's part of it. But even working on the problems and the challenges, uh, as long as you've got those things in place, makes it a fun work environment.
0: Yes. And so when people have problems, so like let's say a manager has a a problem with an employee, as you mentioned, coming alongside them and finding out if it's a skills issue helping them, if it's a behavioral issue, helping them. but that takes courage, and managers should be trained to to speak up sooner rather than later. and then being able to have those difficult conversations.
1: Yeah, I think there there are programs that I believe maybe you may offer some on conflict resolution, but the worst thing is to uh, repress, uh, hide uh, an issue. Let it linger. The last thing someone wants to do is save. Should do is save an issue they're having with an employee for their annual review. If there's an issue, you should address it right then. I'm always tell my employees if, if I'm if I'm bringing up an issue for the first time in a review, uh, shame on me. That's that. Uh, there should never be a surprise in, in your annual review. But if there's an issue, you need to have that 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 conversation. It's difficult. People don't like to have difficult conversations, and it's countless the number of times in which. I've been with a supervisor who's talking about one of their employees who is giving them is, is not performing in one way or the other. And this has been a, a a problem for a recurring period of time. And yet you go back and look at the review that they've been giving them and they're giving them all great marks. And too often people get let go for poor performance and they pull out their, their past review history and they're all uh, getting good marks. And so people have to be, Managers have to be honest with their with their, their uh, direct reports and give them the constructive information that they need. You're not doing them a, a service by, by not letting them know where they need to improve.
0: I understand that the idea behind the annual review is some sort of mechanism. Uh, and in a large organization, you think, okay, this is make sure that everybody is being... Um, we're paying attention to everybody and everybody's work performance and they know where they are. But as you said, if the problem comes up a month after their review and then they're not talked to for 11 months, that's, that's problematic. And so some people think the annual review is really not very kind to both the person and the organization. Insofar as that, that is the time where you are in a way called into the principal's office and told what you're not doing right rather than constant conversations with managers so that people have that the positive feedback, all the things that they're doing right and being encouraged and being noticed. And then the manager is also noticing when, they're, when there's an issue going on. And so constant conversations versus this sort of arbitrary or this, this one-year review that many times doesn't feel like well, the organization yeah, think- for them.
1: I think it depends on on how you approach the review, but the way I I like to think of the review is it's twofold. It's one, it's a summary of the year before. So it's, it's not, it's not new information. It's just a summary of things that we've talked about through the past year. And it's a chance to to codify all the things that we've talked about. So there shouldn't be, again, anything new. It's just a a summary of all the things we've talked about the year and and then being able to quantify where, where necessary scores so that we can, Use that as a reference point for compensation, uh, and then the second half of it is for future planning. I usually look at the review uh, as also uh, the pl- we build the plan for the following year. What's your what or the coming year? What's your goals for this coming year? Um, what things are we going to build on? What things are we going to do differently? And so uh, it's more about how we build for the future. And usually in our reviews, we spend at least half the time or more than half the time talking about the the coming year and not the past year.
0: Yeah this idea of forward forward looking right so yeah. in the everyday we would hope the manager would deal with what's going on but the annual review i love that you know you are just talking about what happened but it's forward looking how can we be better you know you using positive psychology to to build on what you're currently doing and how can we maximize that so that you you thrive and the organization thrives can you tell us about a situation that you've had with a team or with an individual that was difficult for you and why it was difficult?
1: Hmm. Well, there'd be over a, a 40 year career. There've been uh, tons of them. Um, you know, uh, sometimes when you have an issue with a, with a, a employee that has done something wrong that there's, you really have zero tolerance for um, it's, it's it's quick and decisive other times uh, where they need to, to improve, it's, it's a, a it's a, a more, more difficult, but, um, but you want to give them the opportunity to improve. And so um, I guess I'm trying to think of how I would describe any of these without actually talking about a particular person. I've had um, uh, employees that have had uh, challenges with uh, their communication style. I'll just I won't mention a person, but their communication style and, and being too, uh, too dismissive, too abrupt, and, and having to have a conversation with them about being better listeners, um, I'll say, you know, maybe more rather than talking about any one individual, I think more broadly, um, having a constructive conversation with your, your colleagues about their their um, areas of deficiency and, and then actually making uh, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's always interesting because most times, almost invariably, they don't see that if they, we, we all have blind spots so when you share this with someone they're not whatever their their deficiency is it's rarely something that they're doing intentionally or even aware of and just sometimes making them aware of it can uh, can help them and so um if you do that in a constructive manner and then and work on a, a plan in which to uh to address it most people react uh well to it um and you don't do it as a as a criticism or as a coach you, know, you approach it as a, from a coaching perspective, how, here's an issue that I've, I've been told that that, that we're having. Um, maybe let's talk about how we can address this and, and and move forward. And most people respond well to that.
0: I think you're so right. Sometimes people get labeled in our minds as bullies or aggressive. Um, and we just assume they know they're doing this or they're doing it intentionally. And sometimes it could be cultural. Sometimes it could be like, oh, I thought it was a team player. I thought this is what it meant. And if nobody tells them, right? So having those difficult conversations, you know, I think when um, someone looks at, you know, how successful you've been and the positions that you've had and that you're in right now, and you've had to deal with a lot of difficult situations throughout your life and in business. And I imagine sometimes it does get easier, but what makes something difficult is because of who we are and what we value. And I would imagine that it's the case that you still that you still do find some circumstances that are difficult to have those conversations with certain people. Is that true?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that that uh, we've talked about in my company and our values there, I um, mean, we actually have it embedded as a second level of value at, at the University of Tennessee, is creating what we, we refer to as win-win-win uh, solutions. Um, and what we used to say that the way to get to the win-win uh, was to expand your time horizon. Because usually, in the short term, when you have a conflict between you and someone else or another organization, the uh, the best immediate answer in the short term is for you to win and them to lose. Um, but if you think about success over the long term, to be successful over the long term, you can't be successful by yourself. You're going to have to have partners and have partners over the long term, you're going to have to have a good trusting relationship over the long term. So when you're looking at a particular problem, it's not about solving for that one tactical moment. It's about solving for that long term relationship. So it kind of helps your perspective if you think more about so what's going to be the best resolution if we think about um, what's best for the, both of us or the two organizations over the longer period of time. And that, that I think sometimes uh, can help us come to a, a, a better resolution than we might otherwise have. I always <laughs> say win-win-win because the uh, you have the, the 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 two wins between the two parties that are negotiating. We added the third win to remind us that our actions or decisions may affect somebody external to 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 us, and and we want to make sure that those people are also going to be benefiting from what decisions we make.
0: I like that the win-win-win. I you know yeah. I absolutely believe in win-win solutions. Uh, because we want to treat everyone with dignity and respect and look at everyone's perspective. But we also have our external, we have the organization itself, and then its stakeholders and where it is in the community. So when you look into the the future of work, I I see a lot about quiet quitting, you know, people uh, being at their organization, but feeling undervalued, feeling not listened to. And you look at all of the literature about how to be a good boss and how to get engagement and it seems for so many people, it just in general, it's not trickling down to their everyday lived experience. And you deal with students as they go out and uh, many of those graduates are going to be leaders, thought leaders are going to be business owners. Do you have any advice for future leaders of how to, how to really embed that so that from the person who's on your leadership team to the part-time seasonal worker, that, that values driven empowerment really reaches every level of the organization.
1: Well, it's up to the, the CEO to cascade those values, that that behavior down to his or her leaders, and then they in turn cast uh, cascade it down to, to the people that report to them and then, and then so on. But I think you have to, as the leader, demonstrate the behavior uh, through your own actions. You can't tell people to be engaged and to be good listeners, but not be one yourself. And so, uh, your the rest of your organization will mimic what you do. At least, generally, they will. And so, uh, as the leader, exhibiting those behaviors, taking time to care about your employees, doing the, doing the small things. It's the small things that matter. Uh, people remember when you remember their name, when you remember their uh, birth date, when you remember uh, some uh, aspect of of, of, of of about them. So, being personal, being present. Uh, and then again, being a good listener. One of my favorite things to do is to uh, go to having different different uh, meetings with my my employees. Um, for example, uh, tomorrow I think it's tomorrow we have a a birthday lunch and listen. So if it's your birthday on that particular month, uh, we have a lunch and. The people come from you know different departments, so it's not like your typical meeting because everybody's coming together. It's a, a, a random thing; it just happens to be you're born in the the month of September. We get together, we have have a meal, celebrate their birthday, but it's a chance for them to share ideas. And I always ask them to share with me what's their biggest, boldest idea that they could possibly imagine. What's your if you if you could have any wish in the world, I have unlimited power, I can change any law, I have an unlimited budget, uh, and you have one wish. What would it be? And it's amazing when people are asked to think big, because they don't always get that. In fact, they almost never do. And uh, people come up with some really exciting ideas, but just being there and, and asking them to, for their, their thoughts um, is, it's surprising how few times people have are treated with that amount of courtesy and respect. And so taking the time to listen, to really ask them for their involvement and actually make and then when they do share some ideas with you,
0: actually take action. I absolutely love that idea of the the birthday lunch or the birthday listen, and you get this cross-section, all different kinds of people from housekeeping to craft services, uh, professors, student workers, or whoever it might be. And so you, you get really the benefit. I mean, if we think about inclusion, right, where we really want to hear from all different kinds of people, that we have to make those opportunities so that someone like yourself, so that our leaders are actually present with all different kinds of people. And um, that that is a wonderful way Mm -hmm. to build um, engagement.
1: I'll say just to build on that one idea, but not only do I benefit from it by getting to hear their ideas and building a relationship with them, but they actually end up connecting with each other. Oftentimes we're in silos. We've had times where actually literally had people that had been with us for over thirty years sitting at a table that had never actually spoken to each other. They'd known each other was they were from a from their name somewhere in the organizational chart. But you know, if you're in capital projects uh, and another person's in um, accounting, they just they just never cross paths. And yet we're all on the same team, sharing the same values and mission, and and uh, and so it's it's important to to know we have that trusted relationship with each other feel like nothing really starts until you build trust. Maybe go back to talking about those great teams that I felt like I've been able to create. Um, the most important thing is building the trust. The very first thing you do to, with the team is have some type of offsite and just get to know each other as people. So if you don't know each other as people, you don't uh, understand where each one's coming from, it's kind of hard to work together. You just throw a group of people together, start trying to solve problems, and they don't know the other person. They don't know where they're coming from. They don't trust them. Um, it's going to be really difficult.
0: That's a really good point. I imagine, is this your answer to how do you get people not just to say yes to you all the time? right? That, we, we want to please our bosses.
1: Yeah, that's, that's always a challenge, and you got to work at it if you're the leader. But I would say that um, it's critical to make sure that people feel comfortable pushing back. So as I mentioned, in those teams that I've always surrounded myself with, I always like to think that if somebody was, you know, looking uh, into the room from an observation tower, they wouldn't be able to tell who was in charge. Uh, it's, you know, seven or eight people all working together, all equally sharing uh, uh, time and, 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 uh, and thoughts. And I always start off with all my teams in, in, in every organization and say that um, you know, my goal is to uh, be above the Mendoza line. So the Mendoza line is about this baseball player. Who uh, could it, it could stay on the team if he could bat over 200? Say so as long as I can stay over tip. His name was Mendoza. As long as I can bat 200, I can stay on the team. For me, if one out of every five ideas is a good idea, then I'm happy with that. But that means that four out of my five ideas are probably not going to be so great. And the only way we can prevent our organization from complete ruin is that if somebody could push back and say, you know, I, that that's a really terrible idea, or maybe <laughs> if we modify it and do this, it could be much better but i want to make sure that i always encourage all all of our all our 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 teammates to uh to be able to speak out and um, i think it's maybe one of the biggest dangers in an organization if you have an organization in which no one questions leadership uh you're at, at a recipe for disaster
0: yeah i would say it's a dying organization it'll be stagnant um you mentioned your father's leadership style in that particular business of very, very old school, right? You're the, he's the boss, he's the owner. He's going to tell you what to do and how to carry it out. And that is a way to, um, to get a certain, to execute a certain plan, but insofar as you want to grow and you want to empower and you want the benefit of the knowledge and expertise and creativity of the people you've surrounded yourself with, you're not going to get that. Right. You won't be better than who you are. We want to be better. That's why we surround ourselves with other people.
1: And they, they, you know, always they say, you know, five heads, are, there's better than one. But I think if if you're and again, not just my father, but there's a whole range of people that I've known that from that generation that have had that more command and control uh, uh, management style. And they've been very, very successful. Mm-hmm. And so um, so keeping in mind that people can be very successful doing things very, very differently. But for me, I've always felt like I only have a certain amount of mental and physical capacity myself. And for me to be able to scale an organization, I have to go beyond my own personal abilities. And if I can surround myself with uh, dozens of, of other really smart uh, uh, people that can that can add to it, then we can we can just do so much more as as, as a team than we can ever do by ourselves.
0: So, as you think about the future of work, and you think about the future that your grandchildren will go into, uh, what do you want for them? What do you want it to look like?
1: Well, I, so that's a great question. Uh, I haven't really thought so much about what, what I would want my work work to look like for my grandchildren, but I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Uh, so um, let me think of, I, I would hope that uh, they, that organizations will be organizations that are people-centric, that will recognize that the, the, Any organization is only as good as its people, and they put uh, even more resources around making sure that that people feel rewarded, feel uh, uh, like they're making a difference in the world, and uh, and enjoy the the place that that they're working. It's not just about what their output is, it's about uh, their their quality of life. they, they work work will be different you know it's already different this year than it was three years ago. you know people are working from home and working uh, from or at least remotely and we're working in different ways but regardless of where we sit or what we do, uh, people are still the the center of what of of what we what we're trying to get done
0: Yes, absolutely human centric workplaces where yeah. we treat everybody. Um, with the dignity and respect that they deserve, which ends up to be good for them and good for our organizations and good for our community. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate your time.
1: Mary, this has been great. I appreciated the conversation and uh, look forward to seeing you
0: again soon. Yes. Thank you. Take care.
1: Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Conflict Managed. Thank you so much to Randy Boyd for sharing with us his insights. Conflict Managed comes out every Tuesday If you would like to see somebody interviewed for the show, please let us know. Or if you have any questions for future guests, contact us at 3PConflictRestoration.com. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Conflict Managed is produced by Third Party Workplace Conflict Restoration Services. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time. Take care.